All right, Exodus 7, Exodus 7, 1 through 13. Let me uh, read the text first, and then we will jump in uh, from there. To set the, to set this, the scene, to set the stage, um, we're in the book of Exodus, and uh, God's people are uh, under captivity and slavery to Egypt and to Pharaoh when God had promised them that he would set them in a land and he would dwell with them and he would bless them and he would be their God and they would be his people. And they would, from that, then be a blessing to the nation so that the nations then would know who God is through uh, Israel, his people. But all of that has gone sideways as Egypt um, has enslaved the people of God. And instead of being able to worship God, they're being forced to work and to bow down to Pharaoh. But God has raised up a deliverer, Moses, despite all of his baggage and sin and struggles, that God is going to use this deliverer to set his people free from bowing down to Pharaoh so that they could go and be with God and worship God and then be a light to the nations. But things have not worked out well, and Moses is discouraged. Pharaoh is not responding, and this is what we see happen next in chapter 7. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command to you, and your brother Aaron shall tell tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment." The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so, so they obeyed what God just told them to do. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff, cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and and they and the magicians of Egypt also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So I'm going to give you a set of uh, give you a set of names. I want you to to do something for me. Can you guys do something for me? You guys agree to it? You're very trusting people. Agree before you know what it is. Okay. Um, I'm going to give you two sets of names, and I need you to I want you to raise your hand for the for the the, the names that you know. Okay. Two sets of names. So, Michael Jordan. Raise your hand if you've heard of this this person or character. Okay. Uh, Okay, that was almost everyone. Do that again real quick. Okay, almost 90%, I think 100%, um, except for the babies. The babies, babies don't know, but they will know. John, they will know. If Uncle Claude has his way, they will know. Okay, so everybody knows Michael Jordan. How about Hershey Hawkins? You know Hershey? Okay, good. So me and you, we're in the bar- I was in the barber shop with him once. Hershey Hawkins, maybe. Okay, how about this? Okay, so, so we know Michael Jordan, we don't know Hershey Hawkins. How about this? Uh, Serena Williams. Okay. How about Amy Dillingham? You know Amy Dillingham? Don't lie. Don't lie. <laughs> so, so here's the thing. What, what are the difference between those sets of names? What are the difference between those people? Glory. Glory is the difference. 
So Michael Jordan, one of the greatest athletes of all time, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. Hershey Hawkins, also a very good basketball player, uh, but nowhere near as great and as incredible as Michael Jordan. Serena Williams, one of the greatest athletes of all time, let alone tennis players, one of the greatest athletes, period. And Amy Dillingham, uh, a very obscure American tennis player. The difference between why we know these people is because of their greatness, is because of their level of glory. It's their, the public display of their skill, their attributes, their mental toughness, all of these things that make a great athlete. And the difference is their glory. That's what makes them known, their glory. Now, we appreciate glory when we see it, don't we? When we see glory, we appreciate it, we recognize it, and so, so we know it. And any observant person who is reading the Bible, any observant person reading the Bible will recognize that God is all about displaying His glory. That God is eager to make Himself known by displaying his greatness. That's what glory is, greatness, weight, significance, worthiness. God is eager to display that to the world, and he's eager to receive praise and glory from people. Now, when, when people see that, they, they start to ask, well, isn't that egotistical? Isn't that prideful that God is so dedicated and so focused to displaying his greatness? Isn't that kind of, isn't that kind of prideful? Other people ask, well, why is God so focused on receiving praise and receiving glory from people? Isn't that egotistical? Isn't that self-centered? C.S. Lewis, the great writer and scholar, uh, once said that some people would, would hear that and, and, and feel like God is like an old, an old woman fishing for compliments. So what is it about God that says, give me glory that has him dedicated for displaying his glory. And here's why God is focused on that, and this is relevant to this text, is God wants to display his glory in order to make himself known. So we know who Michael Jordan is. We know who the Williams sisters are because of their display of their greatness. They're known. And God is making himself known through the display of his glory. And in this particular text, God is making himself known through showing how much greater and stronger he is above and against the power of Pharaoh. So the big thing from this text is that God wants the world to know he is God and there is no other. And what's at stake here for us is if we understand this about the character of God, it changes how we relate to him. Where we could see God as insecure, fishing for compliments, we understand that he's glorious and gracious, and the display of his glory, the call for uh, God to receive praise from us is actually him meeting us and helping us see his greatness so that it can be on display for all the nations to witness and see. And so God is dedicated to making himself known to the nations and letting them know that he is God and there is no other. Now, the way that he does this in this text is through a sovereign display of his glory. Look at verses one through five. He's going to make himself known to the nations that he is God and there is no other through a sovereign display of his glory. Look at one through five. God is going to give to Moses yet again kind of a promise and a plan for what he's doing, what he's going to do to set his people free. He's going to make that clear 
to Moses and to his, his brother Aaron, who is, who is helping him. And look at what God says. He's displaying his sovereignty, that, that is his kind of control and his ability to do his own prerogative, uh, to do what he wants to do. Um, and look at what we see in verse 3. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will multiply my signs and wonders. Verse 4, I will lay my hand on Egypt. Verse 5, they will know I am the Lord when I stretch out my hands. God is is emphasizing that he is the one who's in control of all things, that he's the one with the power. The Pharaoh doesn't have the power. Egypt doesn't have the power, even though that is the power of the world at this time, that God is the one who is in control. God is sovereign. He's going to make himself known through a sovereign display of his power. And this is sort of a showdown between God and Pharaoh. It's a showdown between the power of the world and the power of the universe. This is a showdown between God and Pharaoh. And we're going to see this in the sections that follow. We're going to see the 10 plagues. It's going to happen right after this. This is sort of the warm-up. God is going to make himself known. And what's significant about this is in chapter 5, when Moses first comes to Pharaoh, and Moses says, hey, the Lord said, let my people go. Do you know what Pharaoh says? Well, who is the Lord? So who, who's the Lord? And it's not even this sense of like, well, who is that? It's a sense of who is he to come tell me what to do? See, all these nations, they all have their gods, right? Every nation has their gods. And and what a nation would battle against a nation, they would understand it as sort of a battle between their gods. And so Pharaoh's like, your God, you little Hebrew people that I have enslaved, your God is nothing. Your God is small fries, Right? Your, your God is little to me. Who, who is the Lord that I'm going to listen to him? Do you know who I am? And so Pharaoh asks, who is the Lord? But God is working to not only show himself to his people, but to show himself, look at the text, to show himself to Egypt. God's going to show himself to Egypt. Now, look at, um, look at verse 6, uh, 7. Well, you can't look at it unless you have your Bible in front of you, but I'll read it to you. Um, look at verse 6, uh, 7 of, of Exodus. God says this to his people. He says, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. So God is saving his people, Israel, from slavery and oppression so they can worship him, but he's doing it also in part so that they can know him, that they can know who he is. Some of them have forgotten who their God is. They've forgotten all the old promises. He's doing this so they could know him. Now look at what he says in chapter 7, verse 5. Look at the, look at the difference. 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. What's the difference? God is now not only focused on making himself known to Israel, but he wants Egypt to know who he is. You see that? So God isn't just saving to say, hey, my people, y'all can know who I am and everybody else, they're shut out. No, I'm going to make myself known, not just to you, but to Egypt too. I'm going to make myself known to the nations, not just these people here, and they're going to be known. And he says through multiplying signs and through great acts of judgment, God is making himself known, not just to his people, but to Egypt and by extension, the nations. How? By flexing his sovereign power and glory to free his people from under the tyranny of the world's greatest power. That's what God is up to. How's he going to do it? He's going to send Moses to, to declare, let my people go. And then he's going to unleash plague after plague. And these plagues are going to increase. Why? To display God's power. Because he wants the world to know that he is God and there is no other. 
That's what God is doing. Now, one of the questions here, talking about God's sovereign display of his power and glory and setting his people free, well, I think we're all good with that. But then we look at the text and we see how God is explaining this. Verse 3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Well, what does that mean? This is where we start to feel, wait a second, is that right? Is is that good that God is going to do this by hardening Pharaoh's heart? What What is that exactly all about? Is that fair? Some of you silently may be thinking, well, my God, would, my God would never do that. The way I understand God, the way I understand Christ, he would, he would never do that. But when we see something like this that maybe rubs us the wrong way or seems confusing or difficult in Scripture, we don't brush it over. We, we seek to engage in it and understand. So what does this mean that God will harden Pharaoh's heart? Couple, a couple of things. One, this shows us and the rest of Scripture shows us that God is sovereign over all things in such a way that his plan comes to pass while not undercutting human agency and responsibility. So when we look at Scripture, we see that God is sovereign over all things in such a way that it doesn't undercut human agency or responsibility. One of my favorite passages, and a passage maybe you know, maybe you have it on the side of a coffee cup that you got from a Christian bookstore, uh, is Matthew 11, I think 26 through 30, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Well, do you know what he says before that? The verses before, it says, no one knows the Son except the Father, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him to. So he says, no one can know who God is, no one who can know who I am, unless God sovereignly reveals that to him. And then right after that, what does he say? Come to me. Now, we hear that and we say, well, those things don't work. Because we're not God. We don't understand how they can work. But Scripture has no problem with fully emphasizing the sovereignty of God, while at the same time making clear that humans make real decisions that have real consequences, and we have real agency. Scripture has no problem putting those two things together. And so the first thing we have to see is God's sovereignty means that He's in control, and we are still making real decisions that have real consequences, right? Nothing is stopping me from walking out of this room and standing in the middle of the street. Nothing is stopping me from doing that. Now, that would be a real decision with real consequences, and hopefully all of you love me and would stop me before I do that. But I could do that, right? Nothing is stopping me from doing that. So that's the first thing about hardening Pharaoh's heart. We have to understand what does all of Scripture say about this idea, this concept. The second thing we need to see when we hear this, we immediately forget who Pharaoh is. We immediately forget that Pharaoh is not a saint, When we read this and we say, oh, God's going to harden Pharaoh's heart, wow. We forget that it's not like Pharaoh is saying, God, I'm trying to seek you. Where are you? Show yourself to me. I want to be righteous. I want to follow you. I want to know you. That's not who Pharaoh is. Pharaoh is an egotistical, systematically murdering type of person. That's who Pharaoh is. He is almost the, he is the in, a, in a way, he's the most evil person we've met in Scripture up to this point. And so it's not like when it says God is going to harden his heart, it's not like God is flipping a switch where Pharaoh went from this generous, righteous, godly man to this evil, egotistical person. No, he or, his heart was already hardened. His heart has already been hard. That's been the default condition of his heart, sort of like every other person, that his heart is already stubborn towards the things of God. This is already who he is. 
And so when we see that God is intensifying or hardening, God's, hardening Pharaoh's heart, it's really this idea that God is sovereignly intensifying the pre-existing condition of Pharaoh's heart. He's been stubborn and unwilling to submit to God's righteousness, and God is intensifying what is the precondition of his heart. This is why if you trace this theme of hardening Pharaoh's heart throughout Scripture, you'll see Pharaoh hardens his heart, God hardens it. You just see kind of both of these things described. Now, God is sovereign, but Pharaoh was a hard rock to start with. So we have to understand what Scripture is saying. God is intensifying the state of his heart already. Now, maybe at this point you're thinking if God wants to make himself known to the nations and save his people and make himself known to his people and to Israel, if, God is, if that's what God is doing, well, why didn't he just, why didn't he just save them in one, one, one swift, swift, crazy, amazing, incredible act? And why has he got to go through all these plagues? And why has he got to do all this kind of thing? Why didn't he just cut to the chase and save his people? To make this a little bit more efficient, have a little bit less to read in your reading plan, right? Just one page. God saved his people from a very evil man named Pharaoh who was exalting himself against God in creation, and God was glorified. Right? Why, why don't you just do that? Well, th- well, think about this for a second. Let me put two scenarios before you. I want you to see the wisdom and the glory of God in what he's doing here and sovereignly displaying his power and glory to make himself known to the nations. I want you to see the wisdom of that. Here, think of these two scenarios. Scenario one, imagine Pharaoh lets God's people, Pharaoh lets, this is a confusing sentence. Um, imagine Pharaoh, instead of lets, what's another word for lets? Imagine Pharaoh allows, thank you, allows God's people to go, like, get rid of the two lets back to back. He, he allows God's people to go free the first time Moses comes and asks. Imagine that. Okay, you guys under, whoops, that was skillful. I just took that off with one touch. I don't think I could do that again. Let's try. Um, so you got that scenario, right? They go the first time Moses asks, what will Egypt say about the Lord? The Lord has, will have no reputation. Now remember, God wants to make himself known not just to his people, but to the nation. So if, if Moses goes and, and Pharaoh says, all right, yeah, okay, cool. First time you, you guys are gone. Yeah. What are people going to talk about? They're going to talk about Pharaoh. Oh, Pharaoh was so nice today. He's never been nice before. <laughs> this is the first time he was nice. He let these people go. And now we have to do all the work, right? They're not, nobody is going to talk about the Lord. No one is going to recognize the one true God. No one. Now imagine scenario two, that the Lord is going to actually get into a showdown with Pharaoh. Pharaoh is actually going to really do what he wants to do, which is have his heart be stubborn, and God's going to intensify that stubbornness, and you're going to have plague, and you're going to have battle, and you're going to have all this. Now, and then God's people are set free, which we're going to see later. God is going to deliver them, save them from the tyranny of Pharaoh so that they can worship God. Now what's Egypt going to say? Now what are the nations going to say? It's going to be the talk of the town. It's going to be the talk of the nations. Yo, this God from these little people, the Hebrews, they took out Egypt. Or mostly, they took out Pharaoh. And everyone's going to know. Everyone's going to talk. Everyone's going to talk about the Lord of the Hebrews is actually the real deal. And do you know what we see when the exodus happens? We see this later in the book. The people that go out from slavery are not just Hebrews. 
Some of the people that leave Egypt, the text describes it as a mixed multitude. There are Egyptians that leave with Israel. Why? Because they're seeing the plagues and they're seeing that God is really God and Pharaoh is really not. And they're seeing and they're saying, I'm rolling with this one. And they leave. Which is why later in Exodus, we got to get all these commands because there are some people who are like, hey, I don't know too much about the Lord. Um, I just came because uh, the frogs fell from the sky. So you guys <laughs> fill me in a little bit on who the Lord is, but I know he's the real deal. And so they have to lay out all this stuff for the people and, and for the younger generations that never paid attention. So they have to do all this. And in the process, the Lord is making himself known to the nations. Do you see the difference? And we come to this and say, why is God doing this? But when we start to see, no, he's trying to make himself known to the nations so that more people can know him and worship him and receive his forgiveness and his grace and his presence. God wants the world to know that he is God and there is no other. That's why he's going to sovereignly work these plagues because Pharaoh has exalted himself against God and creation. Now think about this. This begs the question, if God wants the world and us to know who he is and that there is no other, He's going to do it for the sovereign display of his glory. Um, and he's, he's focused on making his glory known, showing that he's the true God. It begs the question, like, why? Like, but he's so glory-focused. Why? I don't know if you ever, ever saw this. It goes on the Oprah show. If you watch it, don't feel bad. But it's a conversation between Oprah and Brad Pitt, and they're talking about um, kind of how, why they had diff- both, despite some of their Christian upbringings, had rejected, uh, rejected God. And, and uh, Brad Pitt essentially talks about he just it just seems so self-centered that this God was focused on his glory all the time. He's focused focused on his glory. Now there's probably some other reasons too people are complicated, but why is God focused on his glory? Why is he so focused on this? Well well think about it this way. When God is focused on displaying his glory, he's trying to help you, he's trying to help me, he's trying to help the nations see that the best thing is himself. That's why he's focused on his glory. He's trying to show us that the best thing is himself, that the greatest gift that the giver can give us is not blessing, not an easy life, not comfort, not riches. Those are good good and fine things if God gives them, but the best thing that he can actually give is himself. That's what God is showing when he's showing his glory because it's saying, it's displaying that all of these other things that God gives are great, life, breath, possessions, food, uh, warmth, um, whatever, great. But what's better is actually knowing him because he's more glorious than all of those things. Now, we understand this in every other relationship. We understand this with a parent who works a great job, and let's say she's CEO, she's got it going on, but she has to work long hours. She's got a lot of money coming in the bank account, right? And so she lavishes a bunch of stuff on her kids, right? She does that every, let's say every day, every week, she's bringing home a new great toy for her kids. Awesome, right? But at some point, the children are going to say, hey, mom, we just want to play with you. Like you're giving us all this great stuff. That's fantastic, but you work long hours. We just want to be with you. Why? Because the greatest gift that someone can give is actually their presence, if they're a worthwhile person. Is their presence. If they're, bad, if they're a bad person, the worst thing they give you is their presence, right? So it's presence. We see this in dating relationships. Early on, if people are dating, well, what do they, what do, they do to show affection often is gifts. Got to get extravagant gifts. When we first started dating, I was always trying to buy gifts, 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 this gift, these shoes, this thing, this, that, that, that. And now what means much to us is just time with each other. 
presence, not presence. Okay? So gifts. So what God is doing, thanks. <laughs> You're just jealous you didn't come up with that pun, pun king junior after Tyler. And Drew. Drew's also good. We have a pun team. <laughs> very, very, very good. Right? But we know that from relationships, right? Well, gifts are great, but it comes to the point where we just want to be with that person. And when God is displaying his glory, what he's working to show us is that despite all the good things that he gives us, the best thing he can give us is actually himself, that he's all satisfying, that he is better than the great things that he gives. And so apply this to your, apply this to your heart a little bit. There are things right now that you're longing for, that you want, that you wish you had, that are probably depending on what they are, but are probably good and godly and things, and there's nothing wrong with those. But what would change if we were to remember that the best thing that God can give us is actually himself? Is actually a comfort and a sense and a knowledge that, you know what? Through what Christ has done, he's with us. Through what Christ has done, he's near to us. He's for us, that as Hebrews says, we can draw near to him with confidence, knowing that we have grace upon grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus. What, what would change if in the midst of you desiring that thing, or maybe a new life stage, or a new job, or, or, a new, or whatever it is that you remembered, that God is with you, and that's the best thing that he could give you? What, what would change? That's why God wants to make himself known to the nations. That is the best thing that he can give to them. Now, how is God going to make himself known to, to us and the nations? He's going to do it through multiplying signs and wonders. We see this in, in verse 5. He says, not just going to do signs and wonders, he's going to multi, multiply them. And, and the thing that we see, the kind of the preview and the promise of this, is verses 11 through 13, where the, the staffs go down, turn to serpents. Pharaoh's crew comes through, says, we can do it too. They throw down, turns to serpents. But what happens with Aaron's staff slash serpent? It eats theirs swallows them up, the text says, right? Shows, showing that, that the Lord is, is stronger um, than whatever they have summoned to, to, do their, to do their bidding. And Pharaoh's response to this initial sign is what? His heart's hard. His heart is hard. He, he sees something that's pretty miraculous, right? Some of us are like, this is really happening? Well, we see something that's, that's pretty miraculous. Look at, look at this. So, so uh, the end of 12, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, and 13, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And then in 14, uh, we don't have it up here, but it says the, uh, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. So, so Pharaoh sees a sign from the Lord, and his hearts are hardened. And we're going to see as the plagues go down, as they continue, that Pharaoh is going to continue to be stubborn towards these signs. His heart's going to continue to be cold to them, while a lot of his advisors and, and kind of, you know, uh, spiritual um, dark arts people and all this stuff, they're going to be like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, you're crazy. Like, you are insane. Like, let them be, right? And so we're seeing different responses to the signs and wonders that God is doing. Now, when we hear this again, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Some of us, some of us our, our mind initially jumps to this. Well, well, is it hardened because, it hardened because of this? Is it hardened because of that? But I think actually what the author is more concerned with us thinking about is not so much, hey, how is this working with what God is doing and what's in Pharaoh's heart and his pre-existing state and all these questions. I think what the author really wants us to do is to stop and make sure that we do not make this mistake of hardening our hearts 
to the signs and wonders of God. I think that's actually the more direct thing to think about when we see Pharaoh in these conditions and doing these things is, is stopping to say, hey, is my heart hardened towards the things of God? We see this in Psalm uh, 95. We see this in Hebrews, where Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why this warning about hardening hearts in, in Hebrews that, that helps us get an understanding of this text was because when God gives a word, a sign, a promise in our hearts, the very control center of our being, our hearts are prone to reject it because we have a spiritual stubbornness within us. So think of this most stubborn person that you know in your life. Now take that stubbornness and put it in yourself and apply it to spiritual things and the things of God. That is you. That is me. But that's just a default that we have. Even if, as we trust in Jesus, there is a spiritual stubbornness in our hearts where we can see something glorious about God in Scripture. We can hear something encouraging about who God is. We can hear a song that exalts Jesus, and we can walk away like, eh, what's for lunch? Right? Can you relate to that? So there is a, there is a condition within us that we can see something incredible, God-glorifying, uh, Jesus-centered, amazing, and, and we can walk away from it just kind of, mm, cool. Or it can actually, instead of melting our hearts towards worship, it can actually uh, uh, freeze our hearts where we can encounter Scripture and be like, ugh, and we become more resistant. This is, this is just natural to, to me. This is natural to you. So, so one of the things that we want to do is we see this. God is making himself known to the nations, but Pharaoh is hardened to it, and we can do the same. So, so I want you to do this. Is there any place, take note of the state of your heart, is there any place in your heart that is cold towards the things of God? Is there any place in your heart of late that is cold towards the things of God? Are there any actions or, or attitudes that are hardening you towards God, that are hardening you towards the gospel, towards the, the good news that, that you and I are sinners, and yet God has not judged us, but put the judgment on his son Jesus through the cross so that we could be received into relationship with God now and eternally through grace? Is there anything about that good news that is making you feel hardened towards it? Are there any sin patterns that are hardening you in your walk with God? Is there anything in your heart that is making you resistant towards the Word of God? You can maybe even think of this. If you trace over, trace over um, the last six months, the last nine months, the last year, are you seeing your heart uh, um, hardened towards the gospel, towards the Word of God, towards the things of God, towards church, towards the people of God? Or, or are you seeing your heart actually more sensitive and warmed towards those things? If you're seeing that, be encouraged. If, and if you're seeing your heart, it's like, oh, no, I actually see some coldness. I need to be defrosted. I'm seeing some, some hardness. I need to be thawed out. If, if, you're, if you're seeing that, uh, it's okay because that, that's normal and natural, and that's part of our, our sin struggle. That's okay. And if you're seeing that, I want to encourage you to, to actually talk to somebody here that you know or someone in your gospel community, someone that, that loves Jesus that you, you feel comfortable with, talk to them so that they can pray for you. Because this is a very normal condition and thing that happens in following Jesus. We have stretches where our hearts get colder towards the things of God. They, they harden towards the things of God. 
That's why the text in Hebrew says, encourage one another so that your hearts will defrost and become warmed and sensitive to God. So if this is you, just go to someone and say, hey, even right after the service, just say, hey, I feel my heart is getting cold towards, towards the scripture, towards Bible reading, towards prayer, towards the gospel. Would you just pray for me? It's okay. That's, that's normal. Right? And we talk about being gospel people. We talk about being responsible siblings, caring for one another as a family. God, that's one way to care for one another is to, is to pray for each other in that way because it's a default of us that our hearts get cold. And it's a default in us because of the, the fall into sin of Adam and Eve, that the human heart is stubborn towards the things of God unless God really warms our hearts. And he often does it through, through different means. And the ultimate sign and wonder that God is going to do to reveal himself to the nations is not just going to be the plagues, it's not just going to be the staff swallowing up the other serpents, but he's going to ultimately do another, another sign and wonder, and he's going to do it through, through Christ. I was looking at a book um, yesterday about uh, Jesus' kind of road to the cross, and I was reminded that one of the things that the religious leaders of the day, ask, they, that they ask of Jesus is, is they consistently ask him for a sign. Show us a sign of these things. They're asking him to, to show his authority, to show that he is really who he, is, who he says he is, and they ask for a sign. And, and, and I think the language here is, is parallel for, for a reason. There's this understanding that God would show himself in a certain way, and the, the sign that God has given to make himself known, not just to Israel, not just to Egypt, but to the nations, but to you, but to me, is not just a serpent swallowing up a staff, but it's actually Jesus swallowing up sin, Jesus swallowing up death, Jesus dying for us, Jesus rising for us, the sign that God gives to make himself known is, is the cross and is the resurrection. That's how God is making himself known to the nations. And think about what this tells us about God. God is making himself known to the nations, not in the way that we would think God would make himself known. Well, maybe he would make himself known to the nations by ridding the world of all, all evil. Maybe he would make himself known to us and to the nations by giving us uh, everything we want. Maybe he would make himself known to us and the nations by answering every prayer anyone ever prayed, right? And it, maybe he would do these things. No, God is making himself known to the nations in a way that no human would ever conceive of. He's making himself known to the nations by sacrifice. Well, why sacrifice? This is a display of his love. He's taking what is meant to be put on us, and he's taking it upon himself through his son, Jesus. That's how he's making himself known. He's making himself known through an act of sacrificial love to restore us to himself. It's the glory of the cross. He's making himself known through the resurrection, which has eyewitnesses and historical documents to show that God is actually also going to rid the world of evil. This is how he's making himself known to you and to me and to the nations. And yet think about how easy it is for our hearts to get cold this news. I've heard that before. I know that already. And so we need God's help that the signs that he gives through Christ would warm our hearts instead of being dull to our minds and our hearts. The good thing is the more that we think on the cross, the more that we see the cross, the more that we ask God, God, would you help warm my heart to all that you've done for me in Jesus? The more that we do that, the more God will warm our hearts. The more we'll see the glory of the cross, the more we'll see the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. Because think about it this way, there is no greater sign or display that God could give to the nations than what he's done in Jesus. He could give us all that we pray for. He could give us all that we want, but it doesn't change the fundamental human condition problem we have. 
that there is a gap between us and a God who is perfect and a people who are not. And so what does he do? He meets our greatest need. And he takes the penalty upon himself, requiring nothing from you to become right with him. He cancels the debt. He absorbs the blows. He bears the wrath. He takes the guilt. He takes the shame. He removes evil from this world through the resurrection coming into effect later. He does all of that so we would reap the benefits. Now think of how many people conceive God of revealing himself to the world. They conceive God of revealing himself to the world in this way, through law, regulation, stipulation, and rule. God has revealed himself in those ways, absolutely, but he has not revealed himself in those ways so that we would see those as the way to get to him, but that we would see those as the fact that we need him, and the way we get to him is actually through mercy. Now, your heart will become warm to the sign and wonder of the cross and resurrection when you understand that, like Israel, you have no hope of knowing God and being near to God apart from God's deliverance intervening. And this is why this is backwards. It's because when we think low of ourselves, we begin to think highly of the grace that God has given. When we think highly of ourselves, we think lowly of the grace that God has given, and Jesus becomes cold and dull to us. This is why the sin struggle that you're in right now, though sin is not good, in some ways it's a gift because it makes you think low of yourself so that you understand the beauty and the height and the depth and the riches of the mercy of Jesus. This is the sign and wonder that God has given through the cross. So I want to encourage you to do this, to see the great lengths that God goes to make himself known to Israel. See the great lengths that God goes to to make himself known to Egypt and the nations through these plagues, through this showdown with Pharaoh, and then see the greater lengths that God has given to make himself known to you and the nations in this era that he's given his son, he's given himself, he's given his body, he's given his life, he's absorbed the penalty for sin to make himself known to you, to make himself known to the nations. Well, we see that. Our hearts become warm to God. I want you to hear this from Revelation 5 as we close, praising Jesus for the sign and wonder of the cross and resurrection. Revelation 5 8 says this, You were slain, speaking of Christ, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Saying, Christ, you have come not just for Israel, not just for Egypt, but for the nations. Every nation in the kingdom of God, every ethnic group, every culture represented in the kingdom of God, God's making himself known to the nations. And what are the people going to do? They're going to be a kingdom and they're going to be priest to him. That means they're going to be near to him. They're going to be in his presence. They're going to be with him because the greatest gift that God can give him, give us, is himself. And God is doing this for us through Christ. Let's rejoice in this and exalt in this that God is making himself known to you, me, and the nations. Let's pray.